on the Legal Economic Nexus podcast, Michigan State University institutional economists Eric Scorzoni and Sarah Klammer explore the work of heterodox and institutional economists. Institutional approaches to economics have a long history going back over a century, but are becoming even more prevalent since the trauma of the Great Recession, global financial crisis, and now the COVID-19 pandemic. We will be interviewing current thinkers from the fields of economics and the law to gain insights into important new research, approaches, and tools to understand the economy. Welcome to the Legal Economic Nexus podcast. Uh, Sarah, how are you doing today? Doing great. How about you, Eric? Very good. Today we have Harvard professor Joseph William Singer from Harvard Law School. We're going to be talking about a number of his works that he's written over the past few decades. Uh, one thing I wanted to know, we will talk a lot about Wesley Newcomb Holfeld, uh, who was a Yale Law professor from the early 20th century. For those that don't know, Holfeld was uh, the writer of, of some really important articles in the 1913 and 1917 in the Yale Law Journal, which set out a sort of legal analytical framework. And that's a framework we use in our new book. Sarah, do you want to mention the new book? And Yeah, um, it, we actually just got our, our uh, hard copies this past week. It's called The Legal Foundations of Microinstitutional Performance, a Heterodox Law and Economics Approach. Um, and it sort of applies the work of Hofeld to um, economic institutional impact analysis. Right. Yeah, that's from Edward Algar. Um, you can obviously get it through them. I think Amazon as well. So hopefully, uh, if you get a chance to pick it up and read it, we'd love to hear any comments you have. So thank you. Just a quick news points. Uh, I always invite everyone to go read the Heterodox Economics Newsletter. The World Interdisciplinary Network on Institutional Research has a conference this fall. It's online. So those are due. Those abstracts are due May 10th. Of course, the Association for Evolutionary Economics as sessions at the ASSA meetings in 2023 in New Orleans, and those abstracts are due June 1. So I encourage people to look at their website for more information on those conferences. And the newsletter has a lot of other good stuff on job postings and uh, other things that are happening in, in the world of heterodox economics. So thanks. So again, today we're going to be interviewing Joseph William Singer of Harvard Law School, and we're going to be covering a lot of interesting stuff regarding how the law and economics kind of work together and, and uh, how legal thinking can help inform economics. So here we go. Thanks. Sarah, why don't you go ahead and get us started? Sure. So both Eric and I have used a lot of Wesley Hofeld's work general relations to help us think differently about law and economics. You've done a fair amount of work on this. Can you tell us how you came across Hofeld? When I was a law student, I um, worked with Duncan Kennedy, who was one of my professors, and I was doing research for him about analytical jurisprudence textbooks in the 19th century. And his interest was in um, the precursors to Hofeld and trying to figure out Hofeld seemed important and it wasn't exactly, we knew how he was important because of how people used him afterwards, but where his ideas came from and why what he said was a breakthrough. And I did that research and I continued to do it as a student and I wound up writing several papers about it, which came into an article eventually. You know, one of Hofeld's great accomplishments was to 
rethink all legal rights as about relationships between people. It had been well understood that rights and duties are correlative. If I have a um, right to exclude you from my property, that means you have a duty to stay off unless I give you permission. But it was not well understood that um, absence of duties, liberties, might also be relational. So I may be free to play violin in my um, house. You know, if you hear it next door and you don't like violin playing or my playing, you may not be able to do anything about it. And so my freedom to engage in the action means I have an absence of a duty. But to the extent that affects you, and I'm actually legally entitled to do what I'm doing, you face a vulnerability from my free actions. So he redefined liberties as being relational also. So think about all legal rights as being relations among people means, for example, that you can't just um, have a legal dispute about property and say, I win because I'm the owner. The fact that there's a dispute is that someone is complaining about what the owner is doing. So what the owner is doing is affecting the interests of other people. And the legal system doesn't answer that by just saying, well, the, you're, you're the owner, so you win. We actually look at the actual effects of your conduct to actually see, see the relevance. The other thing was that, you know, Hofeld uh, differentiated various types of legal rights, right to exclude, put duties on other people to stay off. Your freedom to use your property and to develop it is one of those liberties that may have effects on others. But there's also the power to transfer your ownership mm-hmm. interest and the power to condition those interests. And the legal system recognizes all these different rights, but puts limits on all of them. My students always want to answer legal questions about property by asking who's the owner. And the problem is that um, once you have a dispute, you know, answering the question who's the owner is not a way to actually think about it. Just imagine you're a tenant and your boyfriend is staying over, you know, about half the week with you. And the landlord finds out about it and says, I want to double your rent because you have someone else living there or you have to, your boyfriend can't stay there with you. So then does the landlord have a right to stop you from having a boyfriend or uh, without, you know, unless you pay more rent or do you have a right to have a social life? You can't answer that by saying who's the owner because in a landlord tenant situation, we have split ownership interest between the landlord and the tenant. Each of them is an owner of a package of rights. And we need to actually figure out what are the contours of each of the packages. So Hofeld was incredibly important in helping us disentangle rights into their various component parts and figure out when an answer to one question doesn't necessarily answer a different question. Well, that's certainly incredibly important. It's funny that you say that law students even want to solve problems by just asking who the owner is because economists are notorious for doing that. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm aware <laughs> of that. I think for, it's not just economists. I think everyone other than um, lawyers have a, an image of property, which is like a kindergarten image of it as being mm-hmm. the Lord of the castle. I'm in my house, you follow my rules. And property law is unbelievably complicated. I don't even get a chance to teach all the rules of property in my introductory course. And half the law school curriculum Half the law school curriculum is about property with different kinds of rules. Corporations are a form of property, partnerships, bankruptcy, secure transactions, inheritance, real estate transactions, trust, family property, environmental law, and indiscrimination law, 
zoning law, land use planning, water law, oil and gas law. There's, uh, you know, we have lots of different rules about property. To have a private property system necessarily involves a lot of complexity rather than simplicity. And anyone who tries to set one up, you're just going to realize that there's a lot of issues left to be resolved. You can't just sort of, you know, say we're going to have property, then all of a sudden things magically work. Well, this is pretty interesting because when I talk to other lawyers, I brought up Hofeld since Eric and I, you know, we're so interested in it. And a lot of times they're not really familiar with his work, or in some cases, they haven't even heard of Hofeld. So do you feel like his achievements have been fully recognized? Like, why do you think it is that current students or, you know, current practitioners in the field haven't really heard of him? Yes and no. So most property professors have heard of Hofeld because his vocabulary for different kinds of rights, he called them rights, privileges, powers, and immunities. That vocabulary uh, was used in the first restatement of property. And so there's some knowledge of this for property teachers. You know, his vocabulary is no longer in use. I do think that um, his conception of the idea that um, you have to focus on specific issues and not think that uh, for any field of law that you could just come up with one rule and that's going to decide everything. Uh, the legal system is complicated. And I think lawyers in general realize that there's lots of choices that come into any field of law. And so to some extent, you know, his general approach about thinking about legal issues as not just a matter of logic or mathematical formulas, but needing to look at the consequences of legal rules and not just presuming that if you adopt a rule that's going to work well, you have to actually figure out how they work and how they act, what their actual consequences are, and also that value judgments need to be made. I'm not sure the relational view has permeated the academy as well as I wish it would have, because I do think there's a tendency to um, think about rights as in relationship to a particular person. And if you have a right, thinking of it as something that means that um, you automatically win, rather than thinking about conflicts of rights or thinking about legal rights as a need to make uh, contextualized judgments about the shape of rules governing different areas of social life. Can I ask a, a little, I'm going to ask a question that's not on our list per se, and I just want to see if you, uh, how you think about this, related to what you just said. Um, so my understanding, and I'm going to, I want to make these comments because I think institutional economists may not have read all this literature. And I've, I've tried to read a lot of it. I've read a lot of your work and particularly Marilyn Smith's work on um, their idea that this is my understanding, at least, that rather than just this bundle of rights that can be anything, they seem to be arguing there's sort of these set forms and that the forms are there because of trying to reduce transaction costs and so forth, information costs, perhaps. I'm just curious what your view of that is. And I think for economists, that would be an interesting question to think about in that context. I mean, do you it seems like you partially agree with them, but also partially don't. So maybe you could just explore that a little bit. So I just have a very different interpretation of Hofeld than um, Tom Merrill and uh, Henry Smith do. I think they are looking at Hofeld and how he was used by some legal realists and some other scholars afterwards. And they're um, thinking that the message was 
property is a bundle of rights that can be disaggregated however you want. And their idea is that um, if you're going to have property as a system and not just an individual right, and if you want to have a property system, there are some things that follow from that. And one of the things that follow is that um, you need to define and regulate the packages of property rights that the system will allow to be created so that people can better coordinate their activity with each other. And they're right about that. We have packages of property rights and property systems wouldn't work very well unless we had those packages. My view of it is that Hofeld never thought that the property rights could be disentangled in some arbitrary manner or wherever you wanted it. His view was that we separate out property rights, the sticks in the bundle, we separate them out by contract and by law in various ways. And when we dis- when we make decisions about what arrangements are allowable, we have to look to justice and policy. That's what Hofeld said, that it was not a matter of just logical deduction from the fact of ownership. And Hofeld was right about that. And Smith and Merrill agree that you have to look at justice and policy. I think they think there are just some structural features to a property system that exist uh, for coordination reasons. I agree that coordination is important, but my focus is just a little bit different from theirs because I think a lot of the packages of property rights that we, we do regulate the packages of property rights you're allowed to create. And I do think some of that relates to what economists are interested in terms of producing the best results for society. But one of the uh, features that really needs to be taken into account as well is not just um, satisfying preferences or coordinating individual activity, but having a proper system that is consistent with our most fundamental values of liberty, equality, and democracy. So, you know, when William the Conqueror came over and um, took over England in, eight, in 1066, there was a property system. He owned everything. And they had a few lords and he would d- d- give out parts of the country to them. And they were both the owners and the rulers of different parts of the country subject to his will. He was a little bit subject to their will too because they had armies and could have deposed him. But that was a property system um, and it was called feudalism. And our system is you know, an anti-feudal system. It's not a perfect one, but the goal of our system is partly to disperse ownership and to allow individuals to exercise autonomy and also to um, have a goal of status of equal dignity rather than being lords and serfs. And when you go from a feudal system to a democratic system, that means that certain packages of property rights are off the table. So um, I agree that property um, bundles can't be, you know, uh, redefined in an arbitrary manner. But I do think um, we do have, you know, they do acknowledge and have to acknowledge that even though there are some standard packages, our system allows huge amounts of variety. Just think about homeowners associations. Most of the people in the United States now are living in, if they own property, are subject to the rules of a homeowner association. And the homeowner associations pass all kinds of intrusive rules about the color of your front door, you know, uh, what you have to do about mowing the front lawn, whether you're allowed to have political signs in front of your house. There's all kinds of huge regulations that are imposed. And there's lots of disputes about this. And the courts cut back on the power of homeowners associations. 
So there's a lot of customization of property rights. So even though we have standardized packages, we also have a lot of deviation and customization and figuring out the right balance between those things. You can't just take a simple model and say, well, this is the obvious answer. In each of those cases, you're going to be making very contextualized judgments. You'll come up with rules about this, but there will be judgments based on uh, both normative values about justice and fairness, freedom, equality, but also coming up with systems that work well to enable people to achieve their goals, you know, uh, ethically and within the bounds of law. Great. Yeah. Thank you. So could you provide us a little bit of a brief background or understanding sign critical legal studies and how that differs from the traditional legal studies approach? This is a little bit hard to do because there's not a single thing. There were different strands of critical legal studies, and it was, to my mind, very misunderstood by other people. You know, when I was a law student, I had many teachers. Their background was um, at the time of the New Deal. Their approach to law was a combination of um, thinking about it as balancing interests, but also believing uh, that there was something called sound judgment. So they would look at cases and they would kind of look at the facts of the cases and just kind of give the sense that um, smart people, if you thought about things carefully, would generally come to agreement and that there was a kind of logic to law. And it wasn't philosophical logic, it wasn't mathematical logic, but there was some kind of logic to it where there were right answers um, that could come just from people who were mature and understood the system. And, you know, one of the reaction to that, if you're talking about that in the 1960s, when we have um, civil rights movement and the Vietnam War, there was just a great deal of political disagreement, not just about, you know, political issues, but about what the legal system should be like and what the rules should be. And the, you know, uh, there were academic articles about Brown versus Board of Education. Was that a correct interpretation of the Constitution or an incorrect one? Was it a form of digital activism that was inappropriate or was it um, the shining crown of constitutional theory? So I think critical studies came of age sort of in that era in the late 60s and early 70s. And there were, you know, three different sort of facets of it to me that were exemplified by Duncan Kennedy, Mort Horowitz, and Roberto Unger. And Duncan Kennedy's approach was to um, undermine the idea that legal doctrine and legal reasoning was completely apolitical. So he would identify arguments and counterarguments that were made in cases where the judges had to define or specify or choose between competing rules. He would identify what the arguments were, he would categorize them, and then you would see for every argument there was a counterargument. So just for example, there might be an argument that, of course I get to play violin in my apartment because I'm, I have freedom to do what I like in my own home. And then the neighbor's complaining that I'm playing at three in the morning and their baby can't get to sleep. And they claim a right of security to be free from noise in the middle of the night. So there's a conflict between liberty and security. And if you read um, legal cases, sometimes the cases will say, here's the right result because we believe in freedom of action. And sometimes they say, here's the right result because we believe in secure property rights um, and uh, peace and quiet. And the problem is we believe both of those things and they conflict. And the legal system has to pick when we go with one and when we go with the other. And when you look, with the, look at the reasons that are given for why we go with one and when we, why we go with the other, sometimes no reasons are given at all. 
they just say the plaintiff wins because we believe in security. And they don't acknowledge that there's a conflict and they don't acknowledge that you need a reason to go one way or the other. And I think, you know, one consequence you might get from that is to say, well, it's just as a matter of your unconstrained choice. You believe in one or the other and you really can't justify it very well. Roberto Ungar came into the picture at that point to say, yes, you can justify choices by reasons that could or should be acceptable by everyone by talking about the meaning of values. So Roberto Unger came into it by saying, yes, there are arguments and counterarguments, but it is possible to try and think through what our values are and what does it mean to have a democratic system. So, you know, he came in saying we should be talking about values, not logic, not saying, well, this is the law is what it's always been. You're an idiot if you don't understand this is what the law is. The law is a con we're contesting values. We need to talk directly about the values. And then Morty Horowitz did history about the law and showed that the law changed dramatically over time. People think about the American system and they think there was an American system that's always existed. He just saw that that was not the case. The law was very different in 1776 than it was in 1876 and very different in 1876 than 1976. And uh, he was able to document those changes. And then he was able to show that seemingly neutral rules might have very unequal outcomes. So just to take a very simple example, zoning law seems neutral because you're just regulating land use, where are the apartments gonna be, where are the single family homes, where is the industry? But um, zoning law has um, uh, historically has had an effect of creating and perpetuating racial segregation. It, you know, zoning law doesn't necessarily say we wanna keep black people out of the neighborhood but it has had that effect over time. And so the other part of critical studies was to show the non-neutral effects of rules that purport to be neutral. In some sense, one could um, look at critical studies as quite radical and say that law is politics and it's nothing but politics. And people may criticize that by saying, actually the processes by which judges operate do put some constraining some constraints on them that are pretty significant. There are attempts to justify a rule by reference to precedent or interpretation of statutes. There's a lot of constraint on judges, and so it's not all political. The legal system isn't exactly the same thing as the political system. And they're right about that, but the idea that um, uh, law has nothing to do with politics in the sense of value judgments is in fact just demonstrably false. The Supreme Court is very different than it was 10 years ago. And that's not just because, you know, the Supreme Court 10 years ago was stupid and the people now are smart. It's because they have different judicial philosophies and those philosophies are partly separate from just Republican democratic policy positions, but they're not completely separate because there are value judgments that justices like uh, Sotomayor make that are quite different from value judgments that Justice Thomas makes. And the idea that value judgments have nothing to do with what the Supreme Court is doing is just demonstrably false. You wrote in the article Sovereignty and Property that the definition and distribution of property rights creates both power and vulnerability. This seems like a really important point. I think it's a point that original institutional economists would certainly probably agree with. Can we talk a little bit more about how property rights simply needing, rather than just being allocated on the basis of quote unquote economic efficiency, which is the standard neoclassical economics approach, 
how do we struggle with these questions and maybe what how you would go about thinking through, as you said, talking about values as opposed to um, just rules. There was a famous episode when uh, Representative Katie Porter was questioning um, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. She was trying to demonstrate to him that the standard of the cost of living in Orange County, very high, and the salaries paid to an entry-level teller at um, one of his banks was not high enough to actually for someone to live on. That, you know, the cost of housing and um, food and medical care and just not a lavish lifestyle, but just barely making through the month. And she said, uh, uh, this teller, you know, here's her expenses and she's short more than $500 a month. What would you suggest she do? And he was taken aback by this. And he, you know, at first tried to question her numbers. And she said, my numbers are right. I'm, you know, I'm careful about these things. Assume I'm right. What would you suggest you do? And he really had no answer to it. And the reason there's no answer is people need to live and they need to have enough resources to pay for the things they need to live. So what can she do? She needs money from some other source. And that means she has to be married to someone else who's also having a salary, or she needs to be subsidized by family members, or, you know, she needs to move or something that is going to give. So under our current set of rules, the bank is actually empowered to pay her less than a living wage. They have the right to do that, but that creates vulnerability in her. It imposes costs on other people. It means other people have to subsidize her in some way or she's suffering um, you know, a great hardship, giving up adequate food, having no medical care. There's vulnerability that is being po- imposed upon her. And there's various ways to deal with this. Um, you know, the bank could actually pay a living wage, for one thing. They may be worried about, um, if we do that, then we're gonna make less money and we'll have trouble in competition with other banks. Well, the way to solve that is to get a law that makes all the banks pay a living wage. And if they can't um, make profits while paying a living wage, then they don't have a business plan. But I just, that's not true, right? If you just redistributed the amount of the profits of the organization to make sure that everyone working for it, whose work is essential to have the institution actually function, if you actually redistributed the the, uh, profits of the organization based on a living wage idea, and they had both custom and law that would do that, then the vulnerabilities would be far less. Uh, But that requires law to actually define the uh, legitimate property rights of the employer. Here's another story. In the 1660s, King Charles II sent Richard Nichols to New York to conquer it from the Dutch. And he did that. He went there, he had an army, and he uh, threw the Dutch out of New York. And Great Britain basically took over as the government of New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey. And Nichols got instructions from the king to settle New Jersey. So he gave deeds to two groups of settlers, one from Massachusetts and one from Long Island, to go down to New Jersey and live there. And one set was in uh, Elizabeth, which is a current city in the north north of New Jersey. And the other set went to Monmouth County, which is where Asbury Park is. So they went there and they settled. And they had deeds that were given to them by this guy, Nichols. And then some years later, the king gave New Jersey to two guys, George Carteret and John Berkeley, and gave New Jersey to them. And they were going to be the lords of Jersey. 
And so they sent uh, John Berkeley's cousin, Philippe, to New Jersey as the new governor. And they were going to be these new lords. And the whole idea is they each would own half of New Jersey. And everyone is living there, including the people that had just moved there. We're now going to have to pay feudal rents to these two lords. And Brendan McConville wrote a really fantastic history book about this called Those Daring Disturbers of the Public Peace. And what happened is these settlers were um, religious radicals who had moved there partly to escape the Puritans in Massachusetts and, you know, partly to set up their settlements. And they had an idea of equality among souls, not our idea of equality, but just some idea of equality. Congregationalists, that they were going to run their own congregation, they were going to pick their own pastors. So they were starting to develop the idea of democracy, of self-rule by a group of people. And they had deeds to their property. And their deeds said that they would have to pay feudal rents within seven years. But they said, why should we start paying rent? We have deeds to their property. And their sense of it was, we're the owners of the land. And we have three sources of title. One of them is the deed you already gave us. The deed doesn't name a lord. We're the owners. You can't put a lord on us afterwards because we're the owners. We don't have a lord. And you can't put a lord on afterwards because that's taking away our property rights. We also own property because we built our villages. And that's Locke's idea, labor theory of value of creating property. And by the way, we talked to the Lenny Lenape Indians and we made arrangements and they said we could live in this area. So we have title from a transfer from the Indians. We have three sources of title. And you guys are not related to any of them. So these settlers, most of them refused to pay the feudal rents. And the lords eventually you know, gave up and they transferred their feudal rights to a group of proprietors. And there was a low-level civil war in New Jersey for about 100 years. And some people were on the, beside, on the side of the proprietors and would pay the feudal rents. Other people would resist. Uh, they would arrest judges. They would take people out of jail who had been jailed for not paying the rents. There was a kind of civil unrest about this. And eventually we get to independence in 1776 and the proprietors lose out. And the reason I'm telling this story is that it's to remind us about William the Conqueror coming over to England and setting up feudalism. What happened over time was that you'd have the king and then the nobles and then the peasants and then the serfs, the ones that actually had no freedom whatsoever. The system over time took away the powers of the lords. Some of those powers went to the king, and that's how we got common law courts. So you had royal courts rather than manorial courts run by the lords. So they lost their governing powers to the central common law courts. But some of the property rights of the lords were pushed down to the vassals, to the peasants who were living on the land. You know, King Charles II was trying to recreate feudalism in New Jersey. And feudalism means that everyone is someone's servant. So there's not really liberty here. You know, if you want to move away from the manor, you need the Lord's permission to move to London. Well, that's not our democratic system. Our democratic system is... You might pay rent to the Lord, but the Lord doesn't tell you who your friends are going to be. And the Lord doesn't have the power of life and death over you. So our law limited the power of Lords. New Jersey could have had two owners and a lot of tenants. That's a property system. That's not our system. To have the system that the economists are envisioning, economists are envisioning a system with a lot of owners. 
Well, you only get a lot of owners if you take property rights away from lords and redistribute them to the tenants on the land. Plus, you have to have laws that regulate and prohibit feudal arrangements. If you want property to be alienable in the marketplace, if you want to have a real estate market, then if someone sells property with a covenant on it that says the property may never be sold, the legal system has to come in and cross that covenant out and say, we're not going to give you the power to create the kind of property right, because that interferes with the freedom to move, to transfer property, to have a market system. To have a market system, you need to regulate agreements to prevent agreements that clog up the system and create a kind of Downton Abbey, you know, manner <laughs> where it's every, you know, there's, you know, an owner and there's, that person has undue power over everyone in the village. We don't want to have a lord that we all have to um, bow down to and do whatever they say. Just imagine having one owner in the city of Cambridge. That's not our system, but that doesn't happen by magic. You actually have to have a system of laws that's designed to actually widely disperse uh, power over property so that people can exercise autonomy, so that we can have what are called free markets. You need regulation so that we can have free markets. So I was just listening to the Strict Scrutiny podcast, and Linda Greenhouse was a guest, and she actually cited the Cedar Point case as a really important case that maybe went under the radar. And I was kind of curious, given your background, what you thought about this case, its importance, if you agree with her on that, and um, you know maybe how Holfeld would even help us think through this situation. So I, she's right. It's a hugely important case. And um, I think it hasn't gotten enough attention. On the other hand, th- these things are complicated because... The Supreme Court often makes a ruling in a case that gets, you know, cut down later. Well, we didn't really mean X, Y, and Z. You know, we said that, but we didn't really mean it. In this case, if you take Cedar Point to its logical conclusion, it has really radical destabilizing consequences. And, you know, it's possible that the law may develop in that direction. I think there will be a stopping point to it because I don't think they really mean what they said. So Cedar Point said that owners have the right to exclude non-owners, and the right to exclude is a fundamental right that you cannot take away without compensation. The case does recognize some exceptions to that, but its recognition of those exceptions is inadequate. So let me just say in general how radical it would be to say that the right to exclude is absolute. I was born one week after the decision in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, in 1954. And I was 10 years old when the public accommodations law was passed in 1964. That was the law that said you cannot discriminate on the basis of race in a restaurant or a motel or a place of entertainment or a gas station. That was a hugely important law. You know, this is people sometimes forget these things or they think, oh, that was ancient history. Many of us my age uh, and older have vivid memories of racial segregation. So that law says that you cannot exclude someone from a restaurant based on their race. That's a limit on the right to exclude. If we take Cedar Point literally, that law is unconstitutional. We have um, the Fair Housing Act passed in 1968. If you refuse to rent me an apartment because of my race or my religion, 
I can go to court and sue you under the Fair Housing Act and ask the court to order you to rent the apartment to me. That's a forced physical invasion of property by a stranger. It's a limit on the right to exclude. If we take Cedar Point literally, it's unconstitutional without mm -hmm. compensation for the lost property rights of the owner. Supreme Court doesn't mean that. They can't possibly mean that. And they don't mean that. But if you look at their opinion, they do recognize some limits on this. They say long-standing background restrictions on property rights. Well, the public accommodation of Law of 1964 was not a long-standing background restriction on property rights. That was, you know, we've had racial segregation and discrimination throughout U.S. history. That was the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s were a big deal. They changed property law. They changed the economy. They changed the way the market system works laws prohibiting sexual harassment of women in the workplace, big change in American life. That is, um, in a sense, a limit on the right to exclude. You can't refuse to hire a woman. And when you do, there are regulations about um, how you treat women. Their idea is somehow that property law was set in 1776 or 1789 or 1868 or some date like that. And nothing could be changed in terms of this. That is not the way property law has ever worked. Property law has changed dramatically in lots of ways over time, and they simply can't mean what they're saying. And if they do mean it, it's going to have consequences that no one will like, whether you're a liberal or conservative. So it would have very radical effects. They do say that health and safety inspections are fine, but their argument about why they're fine, I have to say, is nonsensical. They say that, um, of course, those are okay because you can condition government benefits saying, look, you don't have the right to operate a restaurant without getting a license from the state. So if you want a license, we can condition it on getting, uh, on having these health inspections. What's very odd about that is you don't generally need a license to operate a restaurant. You don't generally need a license to operate a farm, right? It's sort of, uh, you know, that it actually was the case that you did need licenses for a lot of things in the 1780s and 1790s. There's a very good book by William Novak called The People's Welfare that talks about all the regulations to a licensing that took place before the Civil War. But it actually doesn't, their argument doesn't make very much sense that uh, health and safety inspections are based on conditioning some discretionary benefit by the government. You're allowed to set up a business. Of course, we have tons of regulation of businesses, but it's not the case that somehow the right to operate a business is a government benefit. I mean, uh, you know, um, it is true that you need government permission to set up a corporation, but that's because corporations have limited liability. And um, most people, including economists, tend to think of corporations as private actors, not public entities. Although before the Civil War, if you had, there wasn't such a thing as a private corporation. All corporations were kind of a mix of public and private. And if you ask someone in 1820 to name a corporation, they probably would have said the city of Boston. So that case, if you took it literally, it means property rights are absolute. And anytime you regulate property, you have to compensate. And that just the effects that that would have on getting rid of environmental law, zoning law, um, anti-discrimination law, labor law, all of it, would be just unbelievable. And they can't mean exactly what they said. So it is very important, but it's very hard to figure out exactly what its implications are. The other thing that's complicated is 
this is based on the idea that this is taking a property. The Constitution says you can take property for public use with compensation. What's the compensation? The legal rules that are in effect today, which maybe they want to change, but the rules in effect today are what is the reduction in the fair market value of the land from the regulation? So what is the reduction in fair market value of a farm from letting people come in during before and after work and during lunch hour? The reduction is zero. There is no reduction in fair market value of the land just because of that. The business may be less profitable if they join a union, but that's from the union, not the entry on the property. The reduction in value is zero. So maybe they want to change the definition of how to measure just compensation for an entry by strangers, but then they have to actually do that and they have to say what it means. That itself would have very far-reaching consequences for utility easements and other kinds of things. And I'm not sure that they really understand the effects that that would have. So they have this huge thing saying it's a taking of property, unconstitutional, terrible violation of property rights. What's the compensation? The compensation may be almost nothing or nothing. So it's a very confused opinion that is, we want to protect property rights, but really not understanding that property rights simply can't function without both common law, statutory, very heavy regulation in order to ensure that property rights are meaningful and available and uh, for people and so that real estate markets can actually function. So your 2015 book on the subprime mortgage crisis was actually titled No Freedom Without Regulation, which seems like quite a contradiction, but perhaps isn't now that you've just explained a lot of this. But could you comment on that title choice further? There's a kind of very humdrum example of this, which is I want to walk around my neighborhood. If I'm worried about being beaten up or killed by other people, I won't be able to walk around my neighborhood. I'll I'll want to stay inside my house with the door locked. My freedom of movement depends on constraining the liberties of others. It's just obvious. Just read John Locke or Thomas Hobbes. The reason for government, the basic reason, you know, Thomas Hobbes, the basic reason for government is that in the absence of government, you know, life is solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. There are places in the world that don't have government and you wouldn't want to live there. It's impossible to live without government. There will be government. The government will be warlords. That's a form of government. There's going to be government in some way. And you're not going to have liberty unless you have some kind of set of rules that make you safe and able to move around. As I said before about feudalism, if you need to eat and you don't have any resources, you're liable to make a deal with a lord to live on their land and do whatever they say. And then you want to move to London because the lord is cruel. And the lord says no, and you're not allowed to um, move. So there's no freedom of movement unless you have um, a law that actually controls the military might of the lord and prevents them from exercising their power to make you afraid of moving or to physically stop you from moving. Property is not just an individual right, but a system. So just imagine, do you want, if a lot of people in the United States want to own property in a certain kind of neighborhood, they want a single family home in a neighborhood of other single family homes, and they don't want apartments around. We're now seeing that there are really bad consequences of that in terms of affordable housing. But let's assume for a minute that it's legitimate. Lots of people like that kind of environment. So you buy your house 
And then next door, someone puts in a 20-story office building or, or a gas station. For you to be able to enjoy a house in an environment of other houses, we need to have laws in place to prevent other people from building anything other than single-family homes. So if you want the freedom to enjoy that kind of property right, we have to control the behavior of other people. And we do that either through restrictive covenants and deeds or through zoning laws. So you won't be free to actually create and enjoy that kind of property right without some kind of regulatory system in place. Once you have that regulatory system in place, we actually also have to figure out what are the legitimate rights of the parties to that system. The subprime crisis, um, you mentioned that I wrote about that. So one of the things that happened in the subprime crisis, which I still can't wrap my mind around, is that the banks were unbelievably careless and they seemed not to consult real estate lawyers. They'd securitize all kinds of things. They'd securitize some kinds of mortgages. They started um, securitizing mortgages without keeping careful track of the titles to the property that they were securitizing together. They didn't pay attention to local real estate law. They lost the notes. The notes were the underlying loans from the banks. And they didn't keep accurate records of, you know, they got the mortgage from another bank, which got it from another bank, which got from another bank. So when we have massive foreclosures and they want to foreclose, ordinarily the courts would say, you want to foreclose, fine, they would let them do it. But when you have millions and millions of foreclosures, the people being foreclosed on got lawyers and the lawyers did what lawyers do. And they said to the bank, prove that you are entitled to foreclose. And because they were so unbelievably careless, more many times they couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. Their records were not exact. And not only were the records not exact, the process by which they used actually violated laws that have been in effect for hundreds of years. Every state has a statute of frauds that says transactions in real estate must be in writing. This is not like hard to figure out. This is not like an obscure rule from, you know, page 4,000 of the tax code. This has been the law forever, right? But they wanted to save money. They didn't keep accurate records. And so the courts started telling them, no, you're not allowed to foreclose. Well, if they're not allowed to foreclose, what happens then? The person who's living there can't pay the mortgage. They can't foreclose. There's a cloud on the title. The property is not alienable in the marketplace. The person can't move out and they can't sell. So there's a reason that we have rules that require real estate, reaction, real estate transactions to be in writing. That's a regulation which is designed to promote property rights and to make real estate markets work well. You want freedom to have a real estate market? We need regulation. And they defy those regulations. And it meant that we had and still have lawsuits about that issue. The other part of the subprime crisis was that they were, the banks induced people to take out loans that they could not afford to pay back. Why did people do that? They did it because the banks led them to believe that it was in their interest and that they could renegotiate and they could get a new loan after the initial low interest rate period ran out. And the banks made them think that property rights are going to go up forever. 
that was not a realistic prediction. It just wasn't. And I know a lot of people thought, oh, they've been going up for 40 years, so it's going to keep going. That, that was just, you know, you're economists. What goes up comes down. This is just ridiculous mm -hmm. for some of the things. The property values would go up forever, right? The people who took out those loans trusted the banks when the bank said, this is a good loan for you. This is a form of soft fraud because it misled people into doing things that they would not have done if they had perfect information. Had perfect information, they would have realized they would have been better off economically just renting rather than buying because they didn't have high enough incomes to actually afford the property that was on the market um, in their area. They would have been better off just, it's not true that it's better to have owned and lost than never to have owned at all. And this means you need regulation to protect people from fraud, from deception, and consumer protection laws are all about that. So when you enter into a transaction with someone else, you're going to be dissuaded from entering a transaction if you know you can't trust the other person. Markets don't work without trust, and the banks undermined trust in a massive way. The rules that we have uh, regulating mortgages, the rules we have regulating interest rates, regulating foreclosure, those are intended to make people trust that when you go and buy a car, the car will operate as advertised, right? So regulations are needed to actually induce people to enter markets and to make them work well. As I've said before, markets are not just this area where people make money and get wealth. Markets are areas of social interaction. It should be a current issue on the political table and on, for economists. People are not earning enough money today. Wages are not enough to pay for a decent living. There is a lot of work that is done that is unpaid. The pandemic shows us there are many people taking care of children, elderly relatives, and people with disabilities, and there is no economic remuneration for that. There are various public policies that could take care of that. Having a family that has enough resources, having a wage actually paid by the government, having subsidies, but you know that is unpaid work that needs to be done. And we need to have some kind of system that actually ensures that it can be done and that it can be done well. People are doing a lot of unpaid work and people are doing a lot of work for wages that are not adequate to afford housing and other necessities of life. And we need to figure out the appropriate mix of um, earned income tax credit, of subsidies, of minimum wage laws, of corporate laws that actually may, uh, maybe we need um, employees to be represented on the board of directors. It's a little harder to do something that hurts workers if you have to look someone in the face and explain why you're gonna do it to them. We need a mix of regulations so that our economic system is working so that everyone can have a decent life. The whole idea of a free and democratic system is that everyone has a right to autonomy and to be treated with equal dignity. And right now, our economy is woefully failing a huge percentage of the population because it is not our economy combined with the laws that regulate the economy is not making it realistically possible for every single person 
to have a comfortable life. And that is not because of some immutable law of economics. It's because our laws that are regulating the economy are inadequate and unjust. Let's end with this question about, um, you know, I don't want to get deep philosophical here, but sort of you talked about in one of your articles, the players in the card about um, responding to nihilism. And I wanted to ask this because I think institutional economists have often had to deal with this issue as well, about whether it's relativism, nihilism, our, one of our mentors, Warren Samuels, wrote a lot about this um, in the context of economics. And what I understand you saying, and I think actually what Warren would have said as well, is that it goes back again to values and we have to make choices and we have to defend those choices. There isn't some external natural thing that is going to just tell us the answer. Does that adequately capture kind of what your thought is as well on this kind of thinking? Let me contextualize this. Economists have a tendency to just imagine that they're thinking clearly and that they don't themselves have a moral theory that they're trying to impose on what they're studying, that they're just looking at the way things work and that they're using some kind of objective analysis, which is not related to controversial value choices. That turns out just to be false. Economic analysis uses cost-benefit analysis. Some economists focus on satisfying preferences. Others focus on uh, you know, comparing costs and benefits and coming up with rules that um, have the best overall effects for society. What economists don't realize is that there have been debates about moral values and how we justify moral values throughout human history. It's Plato versus Aristotle, Plato talking about fundamental forms and right answers. Um, Aristotle focused a lot more on how things work in the real world and thinking that things are uh, somewhat complicated and nuanced. And then you have, uh, you know, John Locke and Kant uh, versus Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill. You have utilitarianism versus Kantian duty-based reasoning. Economists basically adopt utilitarianism. They adopt a form of utilitarianism without realizing it, and without realizing that utilitarianism is a controversial moral theory, right? It's a controversial moral theory. Sure. Why? And so part utilitarianism says we have to have, let's imagine some end, which is um, either welfare or utility or satisfying preferences or wealth maximization or something like that. And let's figure out what rules help us to that particular end. Well, why did you pick that end rather than others? And a lot of lawyers focus on satisfying preferences because they think that's, I'm making no judgment. I'm just, whatever you want, I'm going to, I think we should figure out how to give you what you want. The problem with that is nobody thinks that our goal should be to give people what they want, whatever it is. There are some things that people want that are just horrible and we put it off the table. So if you were doing an analysis of sexual harassment, is sexual harassment law efficient? Is it economically good? So someone could say, well, remember that people that engage in sexual harassment get great pleasure from it. Make sure to include that in your cost-benefit analysis, because who knows? Maybe the people who enjoy sexual harassment get more pleasure out of it than the people that are the victims of it. We don't do that kind of analysis. That preference is illegitimate. And economists, when they do their analysis, don't include preferences like that. 
and they somehow don't realize that they're excluding preferences that are outside our value system. They actually are, but they don't realize it. And if you're excluding some preferences, why are you doing it? You're doing it because they're horrible and because they're not legitimate and they're not legitimate to be counted as costs or benefits. So the idea of deferring to preferences, no matter what they are, is actually based on a value. The value is autonomy, to let people choose their own life path. But it's a bizarre and not supportable version of autonomy to say whatever you want is fine with the rest of us. That is a controversial and unacceptable version of autonomy. So economists are looking for autonomy. Yeah, let's talk about autonomy. And autonomy means we limit the power of the two lords in New Jersey so there can be a lot of owners. The other thing is utilitarianism says, don't make any judgments, just add, count everyone as equal, add up their preferences or the costs and benefits for them, and just however it comes out, that's what we do. Well, it's just obvious to anyone that majorities oppress minorities, and that if you haven't added up whatever it is, why are you adding it up, whatever it is? It's because you want to count everyone as equal. It's a very bizarre conception of equality to add it up and say, look, if 90% of the people want to engage in racial discrimination, then of course, uh, society is better off to allow it. And in order to create every, treat everyone as equal, we must allow racial discrimination because that most people want it. That's a bizarre version of the value of equality. So economists are actually using autonomy and equality but they're using perverse versions of them without realizing it. And in fact, when they actually do the analysis in detail, they kind of account for those things by changing their assumptions or constraining the analysis in certain ways. And uh, my version of this is you're talking about values utilitarianism, which focuses on consequences to society of different choices, that is a legitimate moral structure. But let's come up with a legitimate version of that moral structure, looking at consequences. I care a lot about the consequences of rules and institutions. Economists are absolutely right to worry about the consequences. Uh, will it work as you intended? Great question. Economists are right about that. But one of the consequences of the different sets of rules and institutions and laws is consequences on our values. Preferences, I think economists have this idea that, that somehow you can't tell someone their preference is wrong, but preferences and values are different things. Every single one of us uh, believes in, we have moral conceptions about right and wrong. Everyone teaches their children about right and wrong. We have ideas about things that you should not do. A preference is simply something you want or a desire that you have. Values are things that we feel entitled to demand of others. And we live in a moral universe uh, where everyone has things that we think are, we're entitled to think that other people should do in relation to other people. And what we need to do is actually to name those values articulate them, specify them in particular contexts, be aware of conflicts among those values, and give reasons that could or should be accepted by everyone affected by the choices that we are making. 
I mean, there's several really wonderful books that explain how you can make legitimate moral claims, even though you can't prove it in a kind of logical or mathematical fashion. Susan Neiman has a wonderful book called Moral Clarity. Mark Timmons has a book, Morality Without Foundations. Charles Taylor has a book on the sources of the self and philosophical articles about moral values. We live in a society that values freedom, equality, and democracy. Uh, democracy is one of those things that is now under contest, but the idea of self-determination and rule by the people is one that still is a value that most of us share. And what does it mean to have rule by the people? What does it mean to have protection for fundamental rights? What do liberty and equality mean in particular instances? Those are values that we actually embrace. And the fact that we can't prove that they're true doesn't mean that we don't embrace them. They are part of idea about how we should be treating each other. And the American pragmatists, William Dewey and, J and William James and, and John Dewey, their idea was, if we all agree that there are some basic values, those are contextually basic sources for justification. Let's take for granted that we are interested in freedom, equality, and democracy. And let's figure out what are the laws and rules that actually make those things real and help us specify what they mean in, in, um, in actual cases. And it's true that we're going to have to make judgments and that we can't have proofs that are like philosophical logic or math, but there are better and worse arguments. And we talk with each other all the time about our moral obligations. And we talk all the time about justice and fairness. This is not some obscure thing that we don't know how to talk about. And we should be talking about it. And economics should not take those issues and think that they're off the table because economists are actually doing moral reasoning, but not in a sufficiently considered manner. Thank you. That's very informative. And I think uh, will be music to the ears of many institutional economists. So again, our guest has been Professor Joseph William Singer of Harvard Law School. We really thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you.